Hello all and the warmest of welcomes to yet another instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, your premier North Wales spare room based one person and his cat true crime show that seeks out the cases of note that you hopefully won't know or have considered, that you may at times find horrifying or unbelievable, hopefully interesting and informative, that are sourced from the darkest corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these said tales is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are you guys, the wonderful enthusiasts who keep my home library growing along with my passion for doing the show. It's as wonderful as it always is having you all joining me here today, which I thank you so much for doing so, and I hope that as the episode reaches your ears, then each of you and yours are all good and you're all well. So there won't be too much gump for the start here, because we've got a hell of a tale to crack on with doing. It's been hard researching and writing, but it's definitely one of my favourite tales that I've ever covered here on the show. We will of course do the obligatory and traditional thanks. Thanks firstly to those who've gotten in touch concerning part one of the tale, as well as some of the other show episodes. It's always great hearing from you guys. And secondly, to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with a shout-out this time around to new supporters Brian Dash, Andrew Herworth, Lorraine James, Dave Lang, Jem Smith, Amanda McClellan and Paula Shuttler, plus Simon Dovey, Wendy Sanders and Sarah Hall, who've all edited their pledges, and Laura West, Trudy Nouveau and Olivier, who have opted to annually support the show. It means the absolute world that does, guys. Thank you so much, and I hope by now that some of you have gotten some stuff that I've sent to you, and you've all gotten to grips with at least some of the unaired bonus Patreon episodes. You've got tales like Sanctuary, Maths Misunderstandings and Murder, Angel from Hell, and the latest one out, Suffer the Little Children, to name just but a few of them. Now, if you want to join these kind folks in supporting the show, then it could only be simpler if it was Kanye West. So you just head on over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there, or use the link that's ever-present in the episode show notes. So see what I mean? Not too much waffle at the start here then, I'm proper raring to go with this one. Now, in the previous episode, we met Angel Face and the Muscle Man. Walter Probin and John Roger McVicker, respectively. And while from what we heard, it's apparent that Probin was definitely the more slippery of the two, both were equally committed to the fact that neither of them wanted to spend a day longer than they had to in the confines of a prison cell. Now it's a tale that's got show episode written all over it when these two come together then, hasn't it? And at times, it's almost unbelievable, but it's all true. So with that in mind, Please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the second part of Angel Face and the Muscle Man. But first, let's set the scene. Located in the old Elvitz section of the city of Durham, Majesty's Prison Durham is today a male Category B prison, a reception prison for remand adult and young male prisoners, but it has a rich and checkered history. A city holding once two prisons, the prison that stands on the site today eventually opened its doors for its first prisoners in 1819, holding some 600 cells. But, before the 1823 Jail Act, the warder was forced to pay for the right to run the prison, and so would make his money back by charging prisoners for their food, their drink, and other services provided, these including providing drinking water, straw for bedding, even charging them for release. 
Now bizarrely, Durham also had a license that allowed the warder to sell alcohol and a section of the prison was used as a pub. How crazy is that, eh? That's absolutely bananas, isn't it? There were separate rooms for debtors, but criminals awaiting trial or awaiting execution could mix freely in squalid-sounding circumstances with other prisoners in for a variety of things. The death rate was quite high in the prison, because if you weren't shuffling off because of starvation or some other horrendous cause, then perhaps you awaited the gallows that had been instilled there. It was known as an increasingly tough place as the years went by, and in the 1970s, E-Wing became the high-security female unit, which could hold up to 120 female prisoners, and which at times has housed the likes of Myra Hindley, Judith Ward and Rose West, but which closed down in 2005 after the Chief Inspector of Prisons deemed it, I quote, unsuitable for housing female prisoners, following several suicides on the wing. Before this, however, Following a report on the state of prisons back in 1966, almost around the time we're concerned with here, E-Wing had been designated a special secure unit where high-risk Category A male prisoners could be held because it was judged to be, I quote, escape-proof. So this gave way to it housing some high-profile names. For example, some of the great train robbers had been held there, the Richardson brothers, Straffan, even Ronnie Cray had at one point been there, and of course, Ian Brady and David Burgess. But it was the arrival of two prisoners later the following year that was to propel Her Majesty's Prison Durham into the public conscious. The first of these had been Walter Angel Face Probin, who had arrived at Durham in mid-1967 from Parkhurst Prison, and as he had punishment of solitary confinement still to complete, following his escape attempt from Parkhurst that I mentioned in the previous episode, he immediately put his time locked in his cell to good use. He'd been placed into a cell with manganese steel bars that couldn't be cut, but undaunted by this, he decided to simply remove the bars from his window. To do so, he first obtained some watercolour powder paint for his papier-mâché and mixed the solution into a cement-coloured paste then scraped away the surface cement from around each of the bars, taking care to keep the dust and the sand grains from doing so. After mixing these with sugar and colouring, he found that they would bind, therefore he had a supply of cement to disguise his work around each bar. After allowing another prisoner in on his plan, whom he refers to in his book as Terry, the two acquired a long-handled serving spoon from the kitchen, which Probin worked upon to shape into a makeshift chisel. Now each bar was tested daily for strength to combat things like this, so Probin had reinforced each with wooden wedges, and he regularly used to leave pornographic magazines out on his bed, successfully being able to distract searching officers from searching too hard, and soon he'd managed to remove each bar. He and his accomplice had also created a rope from sliced up mailbags that would lower each of them down and which they designed a mechanism for so that it could be freed for reuse by a metal pin attached to a release cord. So after climbing down on the chosen day of escape then, Probin watched as Terry attempted to follow him but began floundering mid-descent resulting in him entangled in a roll of barbed wire. However, he was pulled from this by Probin and the two grasped the release cord to get the rope down, but nothing happened. It had become entangled both with the rope itself 
on the barbed wire that Terry had landed on. Because it was essential to their escape, Probin acquiesced that he would have to go up and try to free it. He duly climbed back up to his window to find both hopelessly knotted, and whilst trying to undo this with one hand, slipped and fell three floors and landed stiff-legged, causing severe shock to his spine. Both lost 180 days remission for this, alongside a lengthy period of solitary confinement each, and Probing claims in his book that it was almost six months before he was able to even walk properly, lucky that he'd not been crippled for life. Now it would put most people off that, wouldn't it? But not Angelface, he was soon looking for another way. In November 1967 then, as McVicker was being transferred, ghosted from Chelmsford up to Her Majesty's Prison Durham, he proved to be an unwilling mover, refusing to wear a prison-issue jacket upon his transfer. Already a handful, as we've described, he was instead handcuffed to a senior prison officer and placed into a police car, which set off for the long drive from Chelmsford Prison to the north of England. At each county line the convoy crossed, the escorting police officers, both motorcycle officers and patrol cars, they doubled back, having been replaced by alternate officers from each force line, until eventually the convoy arrived that afternoon at Durham Prison. Here, McVicker was escorted inside and taken to the high-security E-Wing, at that time an L-shaped four-tiered structure of cells containing around 31 regular high-security prisoners and two high-security isolated prisoners kept separate on the fourth tier, away from the populace for their own safety, as we mentioned in the previous episode, these being Ian Brady and David Burgess. Here, McVicker was placed into his cell on the first floor and kept in solitary confinement there for another month, the end of the punishment period he'd received for the escape attempt at Chelmsford Prison some months before, that I mentioned in the previous episode. Just before Christmas 1967, he found himself on normal routine with the other wing occupants. Now it was shortly after this at Durham Nick that a new governor arrived, and like many new bosses that come into a place, I'm sure you know what I mean by that, brought with him the proverbial new broom, proposing changes to the facility and the regime. A new exercise yard was being built, along with it a wrought iron shop, which would replace the prisoners' previous regime of association for the majority of the day, requiring them to put in a full working day here. In addition, prison uniforms, issued trousers, shirts and regulation shoes, were to replace the overalls and trainers that most long-term prisoners in the security wing wore at the time. But in an attempt to demonstrate himself as much liberal as he could be authoritarian, the new governor, Gordon Chambers, also invited all prisoners to freely mix on association, including Ian Brady and David Burgess. Yeah, like that would go down well, eh? Now, I already referred to this incident when I covered Burgess's crimes last series on the show, but to recap, whilst Brady had more sense than to accept the invite, knowing the revulsion that was rightly felt for him and his crimes, Burgess's youth held with it perhaps a sense of naivety and he accepted the offer to come out and watch television in the association room on the third floor landing, albeit stood by the door and guarded by an officer. McVicker describes in his book how at the moment Burgess entered the room, the television was immediately turned off 
the other prisoners adamant that he would not be watching it and the hatred then began in the room the venomous barbed and barely disguised comments about sex killers and the hatred felt for them soon rising to a crescendo directed straight at Burgess so tense was the atmosphere in the room that Burgess was hustled out and back to his cell and each remaining prisoner decided as a collective that if Burgess ever again appeared to attempt to mingle with the other prisoners each of them would scald him with a mug of boiling hot water from the communal tiern. Now they'd even eased up to boiling water as well because boiling fat was actually the first choice for him thought that it would cling more and do more lasting damage. Sex criminals are not liked by the majority of prisoners, they really aren't. So, with his plan of having all prisoners mixing thwarted, and him requiring installing another television up in Monsterland, which was the prisoner's nickname for the fourth floor landings, Chambers fell back on his other proposal to make his mark felt. Most prisoners were to be detailed for work in the wrought iron shop, bar an additional rotor system for two prisoners to clean the wing themselves and to wash up. Now although there was a bit of a grumble here, most of these were heavy duty villains whose choice of a life of crime meant that they'd rarely, if ever, done an 8 hour working day. But the prisoners couldn't really support their objections too strongly. I mean, what else do you do all day after all? But where they did kick off proper was with the reimposing of dress regulations that had been whittled away over years. Not so much with the discomfort of prison shoes and the drab flannel trousers and starch shirts, but with the increased regimentation that this move represented. Several deputations were forwarded to the governor, citing recent recommendations from the Committee for Penal Reform that prisoners in high security wings should be regimented as little as possible, and his response was to convene a meeting attended by himself, several prison officers, and each prisoner on the security wing. Here, he ignored each of the prisoners' objections, merely sitting and repeating the monotone that the rules were laid down by head office and were to be obeyed, not queried, and the meeting broke up when the prisoners realised it was futile sitting there listening to the same thing. Instead, they had by that time decided to collectively voice their feelings in a way that couldn't be ignored. The office in E-Wing was located on the upper floor of a newly built two-storey building grafted onto the wing, adjacent to the prison chapel, and which could only be reached through a steel gate at the end of the second floor landing, which led onto a very short passageway with the office and chapel branching off here left and right respectively. The windows to each of these were barred and bulletproof, so it was decided that if all prisoners could get inside here through this gate and erect a barricade in the passage, they would be virtually impregnable. The plan to get inside was to have everyone congregate in the association room or cells nearest to this gate, having secreted food and jugs of water ready to take in with them, and then a selected prisoner would approach the prison officer stationed here at the time with a request to retune the piped-in radio to the alternate channel available, which could only be done from the office. Once the gate had been unlocked, there would then be a mad dash to get through take the officers' keys and seal themselves in, then erect an impenetrable barricade. Just before 8pm on Sunday the 3rd of March 1968 then, the day before the proposed changes to work and dress routines were to be implemented, the gate was rushed 
and as McVicker pinioned the officer's arms behind him and the rest of the prisoners swarmed inside, he noticed a stream of officers armed with riot sticks rushing towards the gate, having been waiting all evening, expecting some form of demonstration. However, they were too late to prevent the gate being closed and immediately barricaded with the altar from the chapel, the heavy filing cabinets from the office and the various items of office furniture there. Pipes were pulled down from the walls and used to lash out at any prison officers attempting to force through the barricade, and whilst a couple of prisoners stood watching and abusing the prison staff, the remainder destroyed the offices, firstly retrieving their prison records from the files for reading, as well as locating, studying and memorising two documents named Operation Seagull and Amber Alert, the external and internal plans of the prison respectively which detailed all sorts of juicy tidbits, including where police roadblocks would be placed in the event of escape, that kind of thing. Kind of handy thing to know, really. One prisoner then telephoned a Daily Mirror reporter that he knew, and during the conversation, various prisoners spoke to this reporter, stating the reasons for their protest, their mutiny, and that whilst they accepted that they would be punished for their actions, of course not being able to remain in there indefinitely, they would not accept the time-honoured tradition of an individual kicking from several prison officers. They managed to relay this message before the heating, telephone and electricity were cut off by prison staff, leading to the men settling themselves down for the night. Now here, in between bouts of singing songs such as Maybe it's because I'm a Londoner to both keep their spirits up and to demonstrate their unity to the gathered prison officers outside, the men discussed what a shame it was that Brady and Burgess had not been brought in there with them, which was actually the plan when the demonstration was first being discussed, before the logistics of doing so proved to be impossible. McVicker admits in his book that had they been able to, both Ian Brady and David Burgess would have died that night, perhaps as painfully as their victims did. Once a petition stating that prisoners' grievances had been written, read out and unanimously accepted, it was passed out to the prison governor and forwarded to a senior representative from the Home Office, who arrived later the following day and spoke to a prisoner that had known him as a governor. A fair-minded man, he told the prisoner that whilst he would not be bargaining with him, the Home Office would consider the grievances contained within very carefully but this care would deplete the longer or more frequent such disturbances went on. But if they were to come out peacefully right then, he would guarantee no violence to any single inmate. After reporting this back to the other prisoners barricaded in, there was eventually a majority decision to come out peacefully, which they subsequently did, and with indeed no violence being offered towards them. A week later, a visiting judicial committee adjudicated on the various offences, mainly destroying government property and mutiny, resulting in almost universal punishments of 42 days solitary confinement and loss of earnings for the same period. Yet trouble arose again when, because it was decided during this punishment period to unlock only three prisoners at a time for meals, so the majority of the prisoners would be getting lukewarm food. Response to this was to organise a hunger strike, which lasted nine days before McVicker kicked off, smashing up the hot plate and scattering food everywhere, 
before standing defiantly and telling the congregated officers that if any of them attempted to grab him, he would break their jaw. No one did, and McVicker went away quietly to his cell, before being transferred to the main prison, alongside four or five others from the high security wing, where he was to stay for the next couple of months. By the time he returned to E-Wing in June 1968, the place had indeed changed. Only seven prisoners were now held between the first three landings, the rest having been transferred, and as the wrought iron shop was open, five of them would work here on a rotor, with the other two responsible for cleaning the wing. Aside from this, they were now pretty much left to their own devices and to arrange their lives within the limits prescribed. The new and larger exercise yard had been completed, there were more sporting facilities available, such as football, tennis and badminton, aside from the weightlifting, and prisoners now had some 14 hours out of their cells, allowed to associate much more freely from 7am to 9pm each evening. Even the proposed enforced dress code which had caused so much bother had been relinquished. As part of the new regime, they were also allowed twice weekly to have a cookery class from the prison cook, an excuse for what must have been always a nicer meal than prison food, and which a newspaper report from the time says even included them having an open account with a city butcher, so foodstuffs such as chicken, beef and lamb were available for these occasions. They were also several evenings a week given interesting lectures on various subjects, so McVicker describes in his book, by visiting lecturers from Durham University. They had the TV room still on two of the landings they used, and piped in radio in the cells. Now it doesn't sound all that bad really, does it? As long as you could ignore the now four sex killers living above you. If you can put that out of your mind, fair enough. But dress it up like a barred up butlins as much as you want. The seven prisoners in that wing, I know ostensibly there were 11, the top tier as I've just said, now having four such classy residents, but we shall count seven as these four were segregated. It was still prison to the seven prisoners in that wing. It was the epitome of where they didn't want to be, and each could think of nothing except not being there. This was the wing that John McVicker came back to, decided that it wasn't where he wanted to spend the next 23 years of his stretch, and put his mind to trying to find a way out of there. He'd already discussed the intention with a fellow inhabitant of the same wing, and an arrangement had been made between the two, that if the possibility of an escape arose, then they were to effect it together. The other prisoner that McVicker had arranged this with, was Walter Angelface Probin, whose reputation preceded him. Now, having so much association time on his hands, Probin put his mind to further studying the prison, because he missed bugger all this one did. He'd long been considering that if down the wall was too difficult, as he'd found out last time, then perhaps a tunnel would be better. By walking about the wing in his bare feet, he noticed that some parts of the floor were warmer than others, which indicated to him that there were cellars underneath containing the hot water pipe heating system. A simple stamp of the foot over time allowed Probin to determine which parts of the floor were hollow and which weren't, thus him being able to trace the subterranean ventilation shafts, and out of the whole wing, the place he speculated most about was the shower room on the ground floor, the only place in the wing where prisoners were left alone or unobserved. It was a room roughly on the inside corner of the L shape of the wing, 
with its main window facing out onto the inside exercise yard. Now this window, although some three feet by six, was heavily barred and meshed, and was electrically wired to the control room to activate an alarm should it be smashed in the attempt of an escape, so that seemed futile. The floor was made of reinforced concrete, and the outer walls of the room built on three inch thick stone blocks. There were four shower stalls on the right hand side as one entered, complete with a gymnasium bench and cell tables in the room, and as we've said, prisoners were left alone here. A previous inmate had discovered that if each of the showers were left running and the door sealed, it created an effective steam room, and it wasn't uncommon for prisoners to spend up to 45 minutes to an hour in here. But it was impenetrable. By September 1968, however, Probin's attention had been drawn to the corner of the room nearest to the entrance door on the left-hand side, which he'd noticed that the window to the left of the door stopped about three feet short of the side wall, but instead of continuing to meet the side wall in a rectangular right angle, instead ran across in a diagonal to the left-hand wall, cutting off the corner. The other side of the room was right-angled, so why had they done this? Over time, he checked and confirmed that the same structural oddity continued through the first and second floors directly above the shower room, and decided that this was either a ventilation shaft, or an old chimney that had been bricked over. After sharing this information with McVicker, the following day, Probin took a small metal peg from the weightlifting stands, and timing this shower after the others, began to chip away at the plaster there to find the edge of the brickwork, crouched behind McVicker, who sat on the bench keeping watch. To allay any suspicions, every 20 minutes or so, they would open the door and shout out for something, or ask someone the time. After two days labouring, they'd managed to make a small hole in the partition wall about 12 inches off the floor that could be perfectly obscured with a bench during the daytime. It was big enough to poke a piece of wire in, from which this was enough to determine that although two bricks deep, inside there was a gap about a foot deep in a triangular shaft. Now this may seem like bugger all to you and me, but to the desperate man, it's everything and with the bench obscuring the hole, Probin now set to work on how to disguise their efforts from the eyes of fellow prisoners and prison officers, and he had a masterstroke to do this with. Some months previously, when McVicker was in general population, and the new, more relaxed regime had been brought into Ewing, Probin had obtained permission to get himself a hamster, which by having it gave him a lot of room for manoeuvre. He'd made a metal cage for it in the wrought iron workshop, into which he incorporated a concealed space that would be able to hold pieces of spiked iron up to nine inches in length, and on the pretense of the hamster wheel keeping breaking down, was able to take the cage in and out of the workshop to surreptitiously gain these pieces, the cage being handed to a supervising prison officer to escape the metal detecting ones that each prisoner was rubbed down with when work had ceased. As we said before, he had over time also developed a hobby of creating things with papier-mâché. He'd make horror masks complete with blood and fangs. He had a giant bat that he'd made hung in his cell. And prior to place was a large papier-mâché spider crawling out of an intricate web that occupied the almost entire roof. He'd also made his hamster a large adventure playground out of this on a large tray obtained from the kitchen. And so for months before the beginning of September 1968, 
A bucket of papamache wasn't an uncommon sight in the shower room, being left there to make the damp prevent it from drying out. So going forward then, whatever was dug out of the wall was disposed of and swapped for papamache, but as probing rounded the first brick to come out, the light grey of the papamache stood out against the light blue paint of the wall. To combat this, small tins of blue emulsion paint were obtained, there was always plenty of it knocking about, as sometimes when prisoners were bored, they'd do a spot of painting and redecoration in the cells, that would look innocent enough if discovered, and were big enough to fit in a trouser pocket. Now, working for 45 minutes a day, this was slow moving work of course, as you can imagine, but relentlessly, Proben and McVicker carried on, the former doing the digging work, whilst the latter kept guard, and after a period of a few weeks, had managed to remove two or three bricks, feeling the faint breeze of cool air as they removed a back brick. They realised that it had been a chimney that was bricked over, and as it narrowed going up and widening it was impossible, they'd have to go downwards, as a lighted match had showed them that this was where the breeze was coming from. They now began at this in earnest then, and within another week or so of determined digging, which is difficult as anything when you're doing it largely unseen and by touch alone, it's almost like keyhole surgery. Proben and McVicker had managed to remove some eight bricks, which they used to block the opening. This was then sealed to plaster level with papamache, painted with light blue emulsion, so the result looked like a patch of wall infected with a fungus, which plaster sometimes develops in a damp atmosphere. However, by the end of September 1968, they'd run into a problem which threatened to jeopardise their escape. Charlie Richardson, the notorious South London gang leader who was also a serving prisoner in Ewing at the time, had asked Probin if he wished to join him in making an escape through the shower room. Probin flat out refused, telling Richardson that it was impossible to dig out from an internal room, but undaunted, the following day, Richardson's cellmate was seen making a tool to do so in the workshop, and smuggling it out in a vacuum flask. He again asked Probin if he wanted to accompany him in an escape, to which he was told this time to fuck off, and the day after this, Probin entered the shower room to see a lump of plaster prized out the wall, underneath the large window in the shower room. When he reported this to McVicker, both men were furious and went immediately to Richardson's cell to confront him about it. After asking him if he was digging a hole in the shower room, Richardson weighed up the propriety of the question and answered that he was yes. When Probin pointed out that he couldn't reach outside from where they'd started because it wasn't even on an outside wall, Richardson replied that they were planning to branch left when they'd made some headway in. He then asked them why they were so excited about it, claiming that it was his right to dig out if he wished, and it was at this point that McVicker could not restrain himself any longer. He told Richardson, and certainly not as politely as I'm putting it here, Don't take me for a prick, Charlie. You know we're working in there. Richardson barefaced denied knowing anything about their attempt, and then immediately, in self-justification, chided McVicker and Probin for not including him and his cellmate in the escape. After some argument in private, 
McVicker pointed out to Richardson that he could see straight through his mock denial and he knew that his actions had been designed to blackmail them to put him into the escape with them. Richardson tried pointing out that it was silly them arguing about it and that if he were included, he would even blot his cellmate who'd made the digging tool out of the escape. Now not wanting to concede to this, the situation almost came to a physical fight between the two, but Richardson stood his ground and McVicker, knowing that he couldn't risk being punished for anything that may draw undue attention to them, let alone fighting, walked away feeling defeated. They now had no choice but to put Richardson into the escape attempt with them. Now seething about this underhandedness and ruthfulness of blackmailing himself into the plot, both McVicker and Probin resolved there and then that they would find some way to, I quote, fuck the dirty slag at his own game. By all accounts, as though that afternoon had never even happened, that evening in association, Richardson began speaking to McVicker about the hole in the shower room and even reportedly told him, Still, John, when we get out, I'll see you're all right for dough and you can come to South Africa if you like. Front like bloody Brighton, that, isn't it? McVicker turned to look at him and with a smile, but a look that said exactly what he thought, replied, Look, Charlie, we both know how you got on this firm. You blackmailed yourself in, so let's not pretend that we're mates. All right. Nothing like that was ever said between the two again. So, making the best of a bad situation and still determined that Richardson and his cellmate, Tony Lawrence, who was serving a 14-year stretch for armed robbery, were not coming with them, the now four men started working on the hole under Probin's direction, so it could progress that much quicker. First up was to clean out all of the loose pebbles and pieces of brick from the bottom of it, which were too large to be disposed of down the drains in the shower cubicles, and to wrap these up in individual little twists of newspaper. These would then be flushed away down different lavatories on each of the tiers, the packets being transported up in a two-gallon tin, before being pushed well around the bend in the pipe one at a time, and then flushed away. The larger bricks that needed to be removed were transported the same way, up to the TV room on the third floor, which due to its height, had a window that could open slightly, had a wide enough gap between the bars to get a brick through, and conveniently looked onto an undeveloped part of the prison, where there was a heap of rubble. Eight or nine bricks went unnoticed as they were thrown there. Several plastic bags filled with water were now flushed down the hole, which served to clear the passage that the breeze they'd first noticed was coming from, and now they could properly get to work, with probing widening the hole to head and shoulders width, and now being able to dig with two hands, using a fashioned chisel that the noise it made was disguised by timing each strike into the brickwork, exactly with the corresponding clatter of the weights outside hitting the floor in repetition sets. Before long, he'd created an opening that was to the left of the hole and three feet down at a 45 degree angle to it, but the further he got in, the less time he could spend digging it out, as getting in and out of the hole took considerable time. On at least two occasions, he was summoned for a trivial matter whilst doing so by prison officers, once when he had an unexpected visit from his wife Beryl, and another time when an officer actually came into the shower room looking for him, to which McVicker, who was trying to block the hole with his body, 
told the officer Probin wasn't there. A check of each landing revealed no sign of Probin, and as all hell was about to break loose, the officer went once again into the shower room, but this time to find Probin stood in the third stall along. So relieved was the officer to have found Probin that he said to him, You've been hiding again, Wally. You really gave me a fright this time, to which the quickest lightning Probin cottoned onto and replied, I put the wind up you that time, didn't I? The officer went away, chuckling to himself, relieved that it had just been another one of the times that the ever-mischievous Probin had decided to hide. It was one of the jokes he often used to play whenever a count was undertaken. He hadn't noticed, and as unreal as this sounds, and to that point, nor had McVicker, or even Probin, though Probin was stood in the shower, but was still fully clothed, and was still covered with soot and dirt from his digging escapades. Yeah, straight up that is, eh? Your ass would proper have gone there, wouldn't it? So with this unbelievably close shave passed, they got stuck in again the following day, and around the 10th of October of that year had managed to widen the shaft into the air hole, enough for Probin to discover that it wasn't a small passage they'd broken through to, but rather the top corner of a cellar underneath the shower room. A bit more work enlarging this hole made it big enough to now be able to throw the rubble and bricks that were removed into, and now Probin went at it like a man possessed. All the time the sounds of his chisel, and the five pound weight he used to strike it, being disguised by the sound of the weights being used outside. To ensure these rattled and made as much noise as possible when they struck the floor, each weight was ever so slightly loose. By the 21st of October, the opening was wide enough to make it possible for one of them to drop down into the cellar and get back out again, so in went probing for a look around. He was back out some 15 minutes later to report that the cellar led to an airy in the exercise yard, a 6 foot by 5 foot shaft at ground level that was surrounded by a 7 foot wall and grilled by a padlocked horizontal gate. This shaft dropped some 6 feet next to the wing, joining a barred tunnel that came out at the bottom of it, which would require a hacksaw to cut both the padlock and the tunnel bars. And of course, Probin already had one. He'd had one hidden in his belongings ever since he'd been transferred from Parker's prison course he did didn't he so what mcvicker and probin did already secretly having one was to use getting one as a means to keep richardson from suspecting that they were leaving without him and tasked him and lawrence to be responsible for getting one in bait which richardson swallowed completely and threw off any mistrust and suspicion that he had of the two they're a devious lot these crims aren't they with the digging all but complete then Richardson and Lawrence planning all sorts of schemes for them getting a hacksaw in. Attention was now turned to other items that the escape would require, namely a rope and a weighted attachment. There was a sewing machine room on the wing, and one day in late October, Probin and McVicker stayed back from the metal shop to do some sewing, soon having made a sturdy rope from a new pair of bedsheets. They also made an attachment out of a five-pound weight and piece of broomstick that would act as a form of grappling hook to support their weight once they began climbing it after it was thrown over the top of the wall. Now this was tested for strength and durability on one of the brick partition walls that divided the shower stalls and was found to satisfyingly hold the weight of both men, so was then placed into the hole. 
Now the plan was once the two men came up into the yard through the airy, they would use a separate rope dropped out of the library window, which was just a cell fitted with wooden shelves that was on the first floor next to the office, to climb up and through an opening in the fiberglass roofing that covered the yard that fitted tightly against the two sides of the wing. The inverted V-shape of the roof met right by the library window, so that evening McVicker went inside the library and covertly, but quickly, reached down to the roof and made a gap in the plastic large enough for the two to squeeze through. The following day, probing went into the hole and within just seven minutes had sawn through both the bottom of the bar in the tunnel so it was able to be bent to allow both to squeeze through and had used one of the chisels to jemmy the padlock off the horizontal gate of the airy, although it still held together when he pushed it shut, giving the appearance that it was intact. They then set to work making the second rope that they would require for the escape, the one that was to be attached to the bars of the library window, which was again to be made from twisted together bedsheets that were stitched with cloth. Probin describes in his autobiography, and the same scene is recreated in the 1980 film McVicker, how whilst creating this rope, he and McVicker were stitching it together when a prison officer entered the sewing room to find them doing so. Without missing a beat, and more importantly, without giving the officer a chance to say anything, Probin immediately thrust the end of the rope into the officer's hand and asked him to take the strain, telling him it needed to be strong enough to support a 20-pound weight that he was rigging up as a pulley as part of the weightlifting equipment. Once the officer agreed that it would be strong enough, he walked out completely satisfied with Probin's explanation. Now he says in his book that effrontery is all that one has in prison to rely on, and he was either that good at this, and plausible, or the officers in Durham Nick at the time weren't the sharpest pencils in the box at all. Incidentally, this wasn't the only example of effrontery Probin demonstrated to the prison staff during the escape plans. He claims in his book that about a week before they were scheduled to go, a prison officer told Probin that he was to be seen about a possible parole application, although he claims he'd never actually applied for parole. Probin told him, Oh no thanks, I'm planning to make my own way out soon. Now because Probin was such a joker, saying things like this often, hiding and all that, he was never taken completely seriously when he did. Which is crazy to think, when you think you were dealing with someone who had his record of escaping. He claims that there was a perversity in him that his sense of humour could not resist, having the real devil in him and causing him to push it that far. But I digress. By Monday the 28th of October then, Probin and McVicker widened the hole once again to ensure both that the larger, more well-built McVicker could get down the hole without risk of being stuck and to place some spare clothing down inside the cellar until the opening was two feet high and three feet wide. It was by this time just at the stage of what Papamache would cover this was and McVicker was to admit years later that it did look suspicious. It certainly did to Richardson when he saw it, who cornered Probin that evening, asking him the reason for doing so. But the ever-quick-thinking Probin simply told him that it had been widened purely because he wanted both Richardson and Lawrence to venture down the hole in the next couple of days to ensure that they could both fit. He gave the emphasis that it had been widened more to accommodate the larger and clumsier Lawrence, which made Richardson laugh and once again allayed his fears. Now on this same day that they'd widened the hole, there was a new arrival on E-Wing, a 
27-year-old life sentence prisoner named Joseph Martin. Martin had been convicted eight years before, in 1960, of the manslaughter of a woman named Pamela Masterson, who he had accidentally shot with a Luger pistol while he was showing it to her to impress her post-sex. Most people just fall asleep or have a fag or something like but whatever floats your boat. He'd got six years for pleading guilty to manslaughter for this killing, but the year after his conviction, in June 1961, had escaped from Wormwood Scrubs with another man, being at large for over a month before being recaptured. Released after four years, he'd immediately picked up his life of crime, now gravitating to armed robbery, and in 1965 was charged with the murder of the assistant manager of a wood green dairy, Alfred Philo, during the course of one of these, receiving a life sentence at the Old Bailey in March of the following year. In the two and a half years since, Martin had made at least one escape attempt from Dartmoor, before being moved in 1967 to Leicester Prison, where he'd become involved in organising another attempt the following year, facilitating his move to Durham's E-Wing. Much like McVicker and Proben had both been when they first arrived at Durham, Martin was still on his punishment for this attempt when he arrived, and was meant to be confined to his cell, but due to the newer and more liberal regime, he was allowed to be unlocked, and went over to meet McVicker. The two men had never met beforehand, but had mutual friends in the London underworld that they'd both worked with outside, and the reputation each held for the other was solid, plus Probin already knew Martin, as they'd served time at Dartmoor together. There was something that appealed greatly to the sense of humour that Probin had, that a lifer sent to the security wing for organising an escape should escape within a day of being there. That's a proper up yours to the prison and its staff, as well as adding insult to injury to Richardson, and after mentioning it to McVicker, he agreed immediately, and Martin was added to the plot. Incredulously, because what are the chances of being offered that as soon as you get to a new prison to join in an escape that's happening the following night, Martin immediately accepted, and the escape was set for the following night. When the next day rolled around, it must have taken longer than an Alton Towers queue, but in the late afternoon, Martin rang his bell and asked the officer on duty if he could collect some books from the prison library, which was opened for him. Whilst he chose some books, but really to keep an eye out, he was joined by McVicker, who unwound the rope he and Proben had made from around his waist, dropped it through the library window, and fastened it securely to the bars. The library was then locked again for about two hours' time until the evening association and meal, which began at about 7pm. By 7.30pm, the prisoners had all cooked and were eaten in the association TV room, and by 7.50pm, Martin was heading down to the shower room, having arranged this earlier with officers. He was then joined by Probin, and followed a few minutes later by McVicker, who arrived in time to see Probin removing the bricks from the wall, and Martin stacking them behind the bench. Now, one of the other prisoners, a friend of Richardson's, walked into the shower room at this point to fetch an exercise bike that had been placed in there. Why on earth such a thing had, who knows? And he stared in bewilderment at the spectacle before him. Now, he did take the bike out immediately upon request, and though he wouldn't have reported them to prison staff, because he would have been ostracised immediately, perhaps even very badly beaten for doing so, he would undoubtedly tell Richardson. McVicker and Probin knew this. 
Martin hadn't had time to barely scratch his arse, so little had he been told before joining in, but there was no going back now. Go big if you want to go home. McVicker was first in through the hole as the biggest of the three, in his underwear to avoid clothing snagging on a brick whilst going down, and within a minute had dropped into the cellar, followed by Probin and then Martin. The men quickly dressed into the clothing they'd deposited down there the previous day, then made their way through the darkened cellar to the tunnel that led to the bottom of the airy shaft. Crouching to make their way along it, Probin reached and bent back the bar that he'd cut at the bottom, then was through, followed by Martin, and then McVicker. By the time the latter was through the bars, like greased weasel shit, Probin already had the ventilation grill swung open, and with the use of a broken stepladder that he'd found in the disused cellar, was climbing up and out into the yard. When all three were out, they headed over to the rope that led up through the gap in the plastic roof, and though Martin was warned not to make any noise on the plastic, reportedly he made a right racket. Probin was up almost immediately behind him, followed by McVicker, who reached the top to see Martin backing away from the section of the wall that was their target, gesticulating to the other two men to stay put as he did so. When he reached them, he told them, I quote, There's a screw with a dog looking towards us. He must have heard us on the plastic. We'll have to go the other way. Now this was pretty much blind territory for them, because Probin and McVicker were unsure if there was a point in the opposite direction that they could get over as it ran towards the front gate. But there wasn't much choice now, so off they set. By this time, as they moved across the plastic roof, it made a hell of a racket, and most of the prisoners were up by their windows, including Richardson, who shouted and cursed McVicker and Probin for all that he could, proper fueled venomous rage at being left behind. The three managed to drop down and noticed now that the wall was about 40 feet away, and so ran towards a high building on the left that the lowest point of was only a storey high and accessible. Probin reached it and was up, followed by McVicker, but it was here that Martin's escape attempt ended, as he was grabbed from behind by a prison officer as he was attempting to scale. Nodding his head in resignation, he signalled to a watching McVicker to continue. McVicker and Probin made it across the roof to a wall that had a row of spikes jutting out from it, and after levering themselves over these, McVicker having some difficulty in doing so, they found themselves on another roof, the roof of the high building, the courthouse that was attached to the prison. And it was here, with the adrenaline flowing and by now some confusion, that they separated. Probin had decided that the roof was too high to jump from, and so ripped open the trapdoor leading inside, and dropped down into a landing at the top of some stairs. He ran down to the ground floor and began to open a window, but as he did so, floodlights suddenly illuminated the front of the building he was in. He could see convoys of police cars with flashing lights, and a ring of prison officers, some with dogs, cordoning the front of the building. Resigned to his fate, Probin simply went and sat in the waiting room of the courthouse, where he was found two hours later when the building was searched by police and prison officers. As he was frog-marched back into the main prison grounds to the strong room of the top security wing, the one question he was asked over and over was, where is McVicker? To which Probin, and his sense of humour must have been eternal and unquenchable, replied deadpan, I do believe he's escaped. Too right, he had. 
When they'd separated on the roof, McVicker had continued moving across the courthouse roof, dropping down until he noticed some parallel tiled roofs at a lower level. Realising that this was a row of terraced houses, he could see a small cobbled road at the end of a passageway that lay at the rear of the terrace gardens. After stepping back into the shadows, in time to see a group of prison officers passing the entry to where he could see this cobbled street, McVicker made it down another roof, then dropped to the ground, and making his way along the entry, took the same direction the prison officers had headed in, theorising that your pursuers can't pursue you if you're pursuing them. That made sense at about 2 o'clock in the morning when I wrote it, Italia did. Now from here, McVicker wanted to get as far away from the city centre as he possibly could. It would be impossible to detail the exact route that he took. Probably even he himself could never tell you. But if you ever do read his autobiography, and I do recommend it, it's fascinating, then he details this entire journey, albeit with some artistic licence. He describes in different parts how he ran past a police station, dodging police who were hot on his tail, how he lost both of his shoes during his journey and injured his wrist during a fall, how he swam across different parts of the River Weir at different times on his journey, how he hid throughout the day to travel only under cover of darkness, and how he travelled mainly along the railway line, relying on his peak physical fitness to carry him through to make maximum distance. He even at one point claims to have dosed down for a few hours on the back seat of a Hillman Minx in a garage that he'd found open. By the time he'd finally made it to a small town, he found a telephone box and called Shirley, telling her the telephone number of the box, the name of the town and the street that he was in, and arranging for friends to travel north to collect him at 9 o'clock the following morning. Now the vehicle didn't arrive at the predetermined time, and McVicker describes in his book a close shave with police officers who'd spotted him here, but he eventually managed to get back through to Shirley, who told him that the car had broken down on the way up. However, another vehicle, kitted out with a change of clothes, food and alcohol, because you'd probably need a pint by that time, wouldn't you, was on its way up and would be there at 8pm. The vehicle was to be a red Morris Oxford model, its driver would be wearing a sheepskin coat, and he would park up near the box at 8, entering the phone box every 15 minutes until 9pm. At the appointed time, the vehicle did indeed arrive, and after watching it for several minutes, long enough to ascertain that the driver had entered the telephone box at least twice, and had a sheepskin coat on, McVicker, then arguably at his most vulnerable point, was away from his vantage point towards the car, where as soon as he neared, the man in the sheepskin coat said quizzically, John, McVicker acknowledged himself and was bundled into the rear of the car and covered with a blanket. The driver and passenger of the car, and he never identifies them, indeed he claims in his book to never have even met either of them before, told him during the journey back south that they'd not been stopped at any roadblocks on the way up, indeed had seen no heavy police activity whatsoever. Three days after entering that hole in the shower room, McVicker found himself back in London. Proben and Martin, meanwhile, received 56 days solitary confinement for their part in the escape, and it was to be the last reported attempt that each of them were to make during their sentences. The status of Martin is difficult to pinpoint following this, as little ready information is available about him, but as a life sentence prisoner, 
it cannot have effectively been released any time before the 1980s. Probing, however, because of his repeated escapes and escape attempts, it was his second after all from the high security wing of Durham, prisoner 605410 was transferred firstly to the high security wing of Leicester prison while serving his 56 days, before moving on to almost a different prison a year, Parkhurst, Chelmsford, Gartree, Wormwood Scrubs, before in December 1972, he moved to Lay Hill Open Prison in Gloucester. Ever since the failed escape attempt in 1968, Probin had decided to plough his keen brain and energies into campaigning for better prisoners' rights, better treatment, education and rehabilitation opportunities, as well as educating himself by studying sociology with a view to working in the field of prisoners' rights upon his eventual release. The latter portion of Probin's autobiography details his correspondence over this time with prison authority, parole review boards, the home office, petitions that he'd created and sent, the list goes on. And reading them, if you didn't kind of get the idea from what we've heard already, then the intelligence, the determination and overall the patience of the man strikes you, it really does. As equally does his anarchist outlook on the class system, injustice and the prison system in general. You'd have to read them yourselves and make up your own mind, really. In 1974, he was paroled, and for two years, Probin remained trouble-free. However, in March 1977, the year his autobiography was released, he was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment after breaking into an off-license and stealing alcohol and cigarettes. Following his release from this sentence, he did remain out of trouble for a considerable time, he continued his studies and he even helped consult about the details of the escape for the 1980 film McVicar, where he was played by pop star Adam Faith. But in 1995, aged 64, Probin once again found himself back behind bars for an undisclosed period, this time reportedly for indecency charges, which were only vague reports about, but confirming pleading guilty to two charges of taking indecent photographs of a child under 16 two indecent assaults and being in possession of indecent images. Then, as late as 2007, one 75-year-old Walter Probin made the news again, this time it reporting how he was fighting against an alleged speeding offence he'd supposedly committed three years previously in Clacton, which he denied, claiming that the camera that had supposedly captured him doing so was faulty and was being triggered by vehicles on the opposite side of the road to it. He'd made some 20 plus appearances in court over this, due to constant adjournments and it being halted for legal arguments, to which he was reported as saying concerning the case, I would have paid £60 rather than go through all this if I was guilty. I'm not fighting this over £60, I'm fighting it for the principle. Sounds like angel face to a T that, doesn't it? And incidentally, his persistence in fighting his corner did lead to the case being dropped. So backtracking somewhat then, and what of the more celebrated escapee from 1968, John McVicker? Immediately after the escape, as a mass manhunt got underway around the Durham area, with police following up on reported sightings of the Muscle Man as the press first christened him from all over the area, McVicker was soon back in London as we've said, where he was hidden by friends of his in the criminal fraternity, and was reunited with Shirley and his son Russell. 
as sightings of him popped up ostensibly from all over the north of England, then across the country, and then all over the London area, he was soon actually hiding in plain sight. Mr Squires, a quiet, well-spoken, well-dressed man, rented a top-floor corner flat above a dress shop on Stratherdon Place, on the corner of Stratherdon Road in Blackheath in south-east London, in early 1969, and for the next 18 months or so, lived quietly there with his wife, their son, being occasionally joined by another woman and a teenage girl. He paid his £40 per month rent on time, he was courteous with his neighbours, went for a pint in the nearby local, he drove a yellow Lotus Elan, just a normal average bloke. His neighbours and local business proprietors who came to know him believed that he was a clerk. The one thing that was memorable about him, however, was his propensity to drink champagne. Either he or his wife would come into the local shop for a couple of bottles a few times a week. But we each like what we like, don't we? I personally can't stand champagne, and haven't had it in years because it gives me the bloody hangover from hell the next day. But aside from this point of note, Mr Squires was considered nothing more than a devoted family man, often out playing with his boy or walking the family dog, and always looking cheery and happy. But this opinion of Mr Squires was shattered early on the morning of Wednesday, November the 11th, 1970, when a team of armed officers from the Sweeney itself, number 4 flying squad, smashed open the door of the upstairs corner flat, handcuffing Mr Squires at gunpoint, and arresting the two other women in the property at the time. A short time later, Mr Squires, a blanket over his head, was bundled downstairs and into a waiting police car, cuffed between two officers, while shop owners and passers-by stared in amazement. While some, such as his landlord, Ron Roback, and Stanley Cynics, the owner of the local shop where he was a regular customer, whilst they spoke to the press who inevitably flocked there and told them what had happened, because the press always has sources, don't they? Most onlookers didn't know exactly what had gone down at the time. It wasn't until the following day that they picked up the newspapers to discover that Mr Squires was in fact John Roger McVicar, prison escapee, who by that time had been at large for over two years, who was once the most wanted man in the country and the first to be declared public enemy number one, the muscle man himself. Reportedly, it had been an anonymous tip received by the security chairman of Security Express the previous day, Arthur Butler, a retired Metropolitan Police CID officer that had been passed onto the flying squad that had led them there. Security was tight, including armed officers, at his subsequent court appearance at Newham East, where he appeared charged with various offences under the Firearms Act, the night after McVicar had spent his first night in custody in 742 days. When he appeared for his subsequent trial at the Old Bailey on Friday the 17th of September 1971, McVicar pleaded guilty to nine assorted charges of illegal possession of firearms and ammunition, as well as charges of conspiracy to rob. It emerged that the hearing that aside from committing the odd armed robbery whilst he was at large, he'd acted as what the Recorder of London presiding, Sir Carl Arvold, described to the court as, I quote, quartermaster to a unit of armed robbers. Removed from the flat at the time of McVicar's arrest were two suitcases filled with an assortment of weapons, including several pistols, 
several sawn-off shotguns, knives and a large quantity of ammunition. McVicker admitted to the court, I used to hire them to a little firm and I used to get a percentage according to their luck. It was a percentage that had kept him in bottles of champagne anyway. Now his common law wife Shirley was merely given a period of probation for harbouring a known fugitive and all charges were dropped against the other woman arrested, her younger sister Kathleen Shaw. But McVicker received a three-year sentence which increased his prison term to some 26 years and being taken from the Old Bailey to serve this in Leicester prison. This was the last of McVicker's escape attempts also, and like Probin, he too settled down to his sentence and put his mindset elsewhere, throwing himself into reforming and education, incidentally also choosing to study sociology. By August 1977, when he was moved to Long Larton Prison in Worcestershire, McVicker had gained a bachelor's degree in the subject, his intelligence and ability to express himself articulately commented upon and commended by his tutors. He was paroled the following year, and ever since his release in 1978, has never stepped foot back in a prison cell as a criminal. He went on to study for a master's degree in sociology, became a sought-after speaker upon criminal and judicial issues on the lecture circuit, and have a successful career as a journalist and broadcaster. He was also a consultant on the film made of his escape and life on the run, which he part scripted, and where he was played by a proper rip-looking Roger Daltrey, which I've always thought was a great bit of casting, and incidentally, when I was writing the episodes, it was Roger Daltrey's and Adam Faith's images that I had in my head for McVicker and Probin. An online search brings up several great shots of the real Probin and McVicker, alongside Adam Faith and Roger Daltrey in promotional stills for the film. Have a look if you get chance to. But it hasn't been all plain sailing for McVicker since his release. Ten years after he was released, his son Russell, who by that time he'd become estranged from, began his own criminal career when he was jailed for four years for £145,000 cheque fraud, from which, like his father before him, he escaped from custody also. Several other offences over the years, including assault, fraud, robbery, armed robbery, even the armed theft of a Picasso followed, until in May 1998 he received a total of 15 years prison sentence. He served eight years of this before once again escaping, where he survived during his three years at large by committing armed robberies on supermarkets and building societies. When he was finally recaptured in October 2009, the following August, Russell Grant McVicker, as he was now known, received a 16-year prison sentence which he's still serving to this day. John McVicker himself has also appeared in court at least twice over the subsequent years. Firstly in 1995, when he was charged with assaulting a neighbour, Scott Caisley, over a row involving his dog, which McVicker was acquitted of at trial in June 1996. Then, two years later, he lost a high-profile libel case following being sued over an article concerning athlete Linford Christie that McVicker had written for the now-defunct Spiked magazine in September 1995, which was headlined, How Did Linford Get This Good?, and which suggested strongly in its content that Christie had used performance-enhancing steroids. Though no damages were awarded against McVicker, 
he was left to pay Christie's large legal costs, leaving him facing financial ruin. However, when McVicker successfully countersued Granada TV the same year over remarks that Christie had said about him in an interview and that had been broadcast, these legal fees were waived. Since then, although an intensely private man who rarely gives interviews or commentary about issues where he'd be a good pundit to, he does continue to write and has penned books on subjects such as the murder of Jill Dando, as well as countless academic essays and guest pieces for different newspapers and publications. Though which are now each probably fine-checked by libel lawyers, best lessons always being learned hard on that end. Can you now see why Angel Face and the Muscle Man has been a tale I've long wanted to cover here on the show? Because it's truly a remarkable one, isn't it? And it's certainly been one of my busiest and favourites to have written and researched. When I first saw the film McVicker many years ago now, I was struck by it right away. I mean, this is long before I saw Shawshank or anything, and I do like a prison film, so I was struck by the ingenuity of the papamache false wall and it's always remained in my mind and spurred me on to study the story more. I do recommend that you have a look at the film, but take note of the precursor that states that although the prison escape shown in it is based on fact, certain artistic license has been taken with the rest of it. Now that is true, especially with the latter part of the film following the escape. Several of the prisoners' names have been changed in it, but if you watch the film, you'll be clearly able to identify several prisoners who've been referred to here in the episode. Brady, Richardson, Lawrence, Straffen, even surely you'll be able to tell who they all are. A lot of it is how I've described here. It does contain scenes featuring the mutiny we described at the onset of the episode, the wish to have had Brady and Burgess in there with them, and the escape preparation is proper bang on. Although strangely I thought, no mention is made of Joe Martin whatsoever in the film. Have a look anyway, it is a decent watch, and it's got a decent soundtrack to it as well, that although not accredited in name as the band, it's more considered adultery solo album, it's pretty much done by The Who, who all chip in, apart from Mooney of course, because he died by that time. It then made me want to seek out the books by both Proben and McVicker, which I again recommend that you read, I've tried to tell two books worth of story throughout this double-parter, and there's so much more to each book, you have to have a look at their writings in each, the prose and intelligence that flows through them. Each of them could have gone from an early age to great things, but instead chose a way that's best summed up by a quote from McVicker himself, which appears in the closing credits of the film. Being a thief is a terrific life, but the trouble is, they put you in prison for it. And it doesn't really pay when you think about all that's lost with it, does it? It costs McVicker and Probin so many years of their lives, and personal loss that well outweighs any criminal gain that they ever made, before they each turned their life around, one more successfully than the other, it would appear. I would love as ever to hear your own thoughts and feedback concerning the tale, which you can do so through the usual channels, chip in by all means in the thread of the show on the Facebook discussion group, or use any of the show's social media links if you want to get in touch to discuss. I'm quite happy to hear from you guys wherever. I always look forward to it. I'm off now to start preparing yet another instalment, and I know we've just had a two-parter here, but we are inching closer to the start of this series Arc Tale, which will be here before you know it, so heads up.
I thank you all very kindly for joining me here today for a tale that I've so enjoyed bringing to you and one that I hope you found both interesting and informative. All that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I shall catch you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.